Would you bow your heads and pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you that you, you see us in the dark and you don't leave us alone. You come into our darkness and you bring the light of healing, the light of your warmth, the light of your presence. Lord, we ask that you would make that happen here this morning, we pray. Lord, we, we, we see with the psalmist that we, our experience of that is that, that we, we think that it's sure that the darkness will cover us and the, the light around us would be as night, but even the darkness is as light to you. So, Father, would you break into this present darkness? Help us to hear and believe by your Spirit the words of the gospel, the cross of Christ, which is the power of God for salvation here this morning. For those of us who dwell in darkness, who need a jolt of your mercy and your light to break into our present pain, to our frustration, to everything else that we're experiencing. Lord, I lift up especially those who are feeling the weight of sickness, Lord, who are at home right now, would you be present with them? Would you heal and restore? We think especially of our, of our daughter, Charlie, this morning. Would you be present with her, we pray. God, we need you to show up. We need you to heal. We need you to save. We need you to speak. So please do that. We ask you. We ask you to do that here this morning. Help us to hear by faith what you're saying to us. It's your name, Jesus, that we pray. Amen. Amen. We are in week number three of our series on identity, and we're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Uh, we've been in 1 Corinthians for the last uh, week, and we'll continue to stay in 1 Corinthians. The Lord be my helper. So here is the great debate. The great debate, it began in the 1960s. To know or not to know, that is the question. So what, what question specifically? Do you, as Jody and I did, find out the biological sex of your child before they are born? There's the great debate, right? Or do you wait? Do you wait? Now, before I get into where I was going with this originally, I was reminded this week as many Anglicans were gathered in Washington, D.C. this week to remember the lives of the unborn who are callously murdered in our country by the thousands each day. There were many seismic cultural shifts in the 60s, 70s, and 80s, but nothing was more impactful than the ultrasound. This, this technology that was then applied to mothers and to children in the womb, the widespread use of the ultrasound technology has led to the murder of uncountable children and mostly girls in the womb across our world, and it happens all the time today. Not just in China and not just into, in some of these uh, cultures that more highly esteem the lives of boys rather than girls, Abortion is, and I, and I use this word because I've, I've heard it said before, but even when I use this word, it, it makes me cringe, and I think it should make you cringe. Abortion is the sacrament of America. 
What do I mean by that? What do I mean by that? The sacrifice of innocent children upon the altar of our self-focused identities. I mean, this is right at what we're talking about. It's going to impinge upon my psychological well-being. Yeah, that's what people do. It's going to impinge upon my life and my career choices. We sacrifice children on the blood sacrifice on this altar of our self-identity. Hundreds of thousands of gallons of blood are spilled every year, even every day or every month in sanitized, safe spaces that's far away from us. We don't come to a common temple and watch it. We don't, we just, we don't bring our infants to the, to the cliff edge or something like that, but it happens all around us every day. And so even as many of our brothers and sisters are gathering in Washington, D.C. to march for life, I want to remember, remember that even in this, we talked about last week, the identity of what it means to be found and identified with Christ and how he heals our blood guilt. This is right here. It's circling around everything that we're talking about in terms of identity. What is our responsibility to someone else or else our children below us and around us? And not just your biological children. So that's, that's the heavy side. I want, to, I want to turn a little bit to the lighter side of this question to know or not to know. There was another seismic shift, cultural shift in the 60s, 70s, and 80s. And that was the color television came to replace over these three decades black and white TVs. Children, you don't know what a black and white TV is, but they used to be black and white, and they were very interesting. And with the television, with this shift, the age of advertising was all around us. It was coming upon us in our living rooms. God forbid our children sleep in a room that is not painted a gender-appropriate color, and now they could show that. They could show that on the television. You're missing out unless you paint or you buy this color for your child. Obviously, girls love pink and boys love blue. This happened in the 60s and 70s and 80s. But more and more stuff, buy more and more and stuff that they'll immediately grow out of and that you can't hand down to the next child unless they're of the same sex, right? That's, this is a seismic cultural shift, okay? We're a part of this. Now, in rebellion against arbitrary, commercialized color preferences, and that's what those are, in rebellion against this kind of false dichotomy between girls, uh, they can't love blue, and boys, they can't love pink, Unless you're wearing a shirt on Easter, right? We have all these kinds of weird rules associated with color that have been put upon us. And these are truly, let me say this, they're inconsequential. They, they're meaningless. We've kind of rebelled against that. And today we are told that even after a child is born, so not just in the womb, but even after a child is born, and you see their sexual genitalia, not only can we not dress them in blue or pink clothes as, as a new trend, which is not really a new trend at all, of gender-neutral clothes. This is a very old trend that's coming back. It's very practical in many ways. We must not even name their sex on their birth certificate, or so we're told. And this is from the inconsequential foolishness to very serious consequence, consequential foolishness. 
And this great postmodern social experiment that we see enacted around us all the time, it is, it is literally insane, but it's totally understandable. We have to understand why it's happening. And I've said this word now two weeks in a row, so I just want to keep it going. It's understandable because we are all existentialists. So I'm going to say this over and over again so it gets into our head. What, what, what is ex- existentialism? It means that I define, I have to define everything for myself. I must create my own self or else I define what is truly meaningful from within. Right? This is where we live, all of us. The theorists of our day say that we must make up our own language even to define ourselves. So not only are we defining ourselves, we're defining the words that define ourselves. We're else redefining them endlessly. This is, and I'm going to throw out two more big words in this introduction, okay? Bear with me, bear with me. Two more big words. This is a constructionist view of language. Or else we have, to, we, have to def, we have to create meaning with the words that we're using. We're, we're, we're adding meaning to the world by the words that we're creating. We're constructing. And this is opposed, so constructionism is opposed to a correspondence view. What is that? Correspondence is old school. What does that mean? It means that the language that we use is defining something that already is. You hear me? So something is real, and we're, we're giving words to describe the reality that is there. Constructionism says there's nothing real until we speak it into existence. This is the world that we're living in. It's a mess. Does it sound insane? Does it sound like a lot of pressure to you? I'm trying to summarize quite a few books in just one paragraph here. Okay, but it's, it's big, and it's real, and it's all swirling around this identity mess that we've inherited. So the question of our day isn't merely about whether or not we should know the sex of our unborn child. It's, we are told that we are oppressive even if we identify our child's sex after they are born. So this is, this is, against, this is against correspondence. Look, I see that. I'm describing that. And it's saying, oh, no, no, you can't do that. You can't do that. They have to do it for themselves. This is all of our logic to its logical end, and it's crazy. It's insane. Another way to say this, in a way which I want to dive in more deeply here this morning, am I, at my birth, as we've seen, at my birth and at my new birth, am I given something? Am I given a name, or do I name myself? Do, am I defined by something or someone outside of myself? And receive it with an open hand? Or do I name myself? Do I define myself? Do I construct myself? Here's the choice. Here's the choice. So I want to dive into that more deeply by way of 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Look with me at verse 10 of 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And I'm going to give you the Chris Bora version. The Chris Bora translation. Which is really just an amalgam of a bunch of other really good translators, okay? Right? This is not because I'm really good at Greek or something. I read a lot of other people who are good at Greek. So hear this from 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 10. To you, confused Christian, hear this. I appeal to you, brothers, brothers and sisters, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, That all of you say the same thing. That all of you say the same thing. 
If you don't, you, or y'all, okay, you all, this is plural, you will be torn apart. If you don't say the same thing, you will be torn apart. I urge you, be united. Be united. Don't just think the same thing. Don't just get on the right doctrinal page. Speak the same thing. Give the same judgment. So I want to consider this morning the name. The name of our Lord Jesus Christ, which is given to you, Christian, at your baptism. Now, the Corinthians, if you guys don't know this, they were not existentialists because this came like 15, 16, 1700 years later. Existentialism, or as a philosophical category, they didn't proclaim, I follow John Paul Sartre, or else I even follow Blaise Pascal, if you're in on the joke. There we go. I follow Blaise Pascal. They didn't even say, I follow Lucy Irigaray or I follow Jordan Peterson, right? This is, this is not what they said. They're not identifying with modern philosophers, but we are still very similar to the ancient Corinthians. We, we can be in danger of reading back into the first century something that's not there, but I want to show you that it's there. It's already up and running in the first century in Corinth. The Greco-Roman world of Corinth was a very prosperous city. It's very much like us in our day. Self-sufficiency, local autonomy, and freedom were the highest virtues. And there's tons of archaeological and textual evidence to prove this. Competitiveness, or else self-achievement and self-promotion, which was evidenced all over the place with cults of personality. This is Corinth. They were the chief. People went to Corinth for this. I, I got to see this guy in Corinth, even and especially in the church. This was the battle for naming rights, what, the battle for who gets to define me. The naming rights, it goes back further, though, than Corinth. Hear this from Genesis chapter 1. You're familiar with this language. And God said, and God said, and there was... So let me translate this with you. This is from Abigail Favalli. She says this, In the first account of creation, so this is Genesis chapter 1, God uses language to create. He uses words, God said, and there was. You, you, you with me? You with me? Okay. He said, and there was. This is created ex nihilo. We've heard this before. It means created out of nothing. So Favali says, he draws order with his speech, being out of nothing. Being. He creates with his words. This is what Yahweh God does. Genesis chapter 2 and verse 19 in the second creation account. Now, out of the ground, what does the text say? The Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man. So he created them with a word. Why did he bring them to the man? To see what he, what man, what Adam would call them. What he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. And so Adam was created in the image of the creator God. You see this? God creates with speech. In Genesis chapter 2, we see that God has created and formed the animals, and Adam comes alongside and he names what God has created. You see this? So Favali continues. 
In the second account, the man uses language to name what God creates. Divine speech makes reality, makes reality. And you can, you can see this in a lot of postmodern thinking about self-created identity. It's taking on the person and work of God. God's speech makes reality, and human speech identifies reality. Do you see the difference? you see the difference? So Genesis chapter 1, God says, and reality is, Genesis chapter 2, then Adam speaks. He joins his speech with God's divine speech, and his speech is true and meaningful because what he says corresponds to what already exists. You see this? You see this? We were given a name. We were created with a word. And from the start, we were created contingent. We were given something that was not ours, that we did not earn. It was given to us. Now here's the turn in the story. Genesis chapter 3. What did the serpent say? Did God actually say? Questions God's speech. Did God actually say? And this is where the battle for the name, this is where the battle for identity begins. Right here, who says? Who says that I have to do that? Who says? Well, God says. This is the foundation. The battle for naming rights carries from Genesis all the way through Corinth to us today. Hear this from 1 Corinthians chapter 1 again. One of you in this place, one of you says, I follow Paul. And another of you says, I follow Apollos. Still another says, I follow Peter. And some of you say, I don't follow any man. I have a direct line to Jesus himself. Thank you very much. I've heard that one before. Have you guys heard that one before? Many modern scholars, they spend a lot of time trying to figure out who these specific camps are. Okay, I, I think that's a legitimate way to read this text. But I, I don't think Paul is, is being very specific about different actual camps in Corinth. Let me explain. So writing to the church in Corinth in the late first, late first century, even Clement, so this is, in the late, this is in the late 90s, okay, before the turn of the century, Clement, who is the bishop of Rome, he acknowledges that some of the original disagreements in Corinth, so Clement writes another letter, later, after the New Testament, to the church in Corinth, and he acknowledges in that letter that some of their original disagreements might have originated with Paul, or else Apollos, or Peter, or even maybe some living eyewitnesses who saw Jesus. That, that could be true. It could be true. But Clement goes on to say, but the reality of their factiousness, this is the language of Clement, their divisions, their factions there in Corinth in the late first century was still apparent decades later when Clement was writing. And this factiousness or else these divisions were not related to the apostles. They were a bunch of personal disagreements. So this comes a little bit more close to home with us and our self-identification in the church. If these factions were doctrinal, then you'd expect Paul to commend the followers of Paul. <laughs> but he doesn't. He doesn't commend himself at all. The Corinthian divisions were personal. 
They were not theological. It was the choice between endless self-definition. I define myself by so-and-so, by so-and-so. And you could see how this could go on forever, and it's still going on today. Endless self-definition was leading to endless factions and divisions in the church. This was what he was writing to address. Paul couldn't care less about making a name for himself or his followers. Paul esteems just a few chapters later in chapter 4, other apostles, including Apollos. In chapter 12, he humbles himself underneath those in the church who are nameless, those unpresentable parts, those parts of the body that nobody sees, that nobody esteems. He says, I'm below them. The nameless in Christ are worthy of even greater honor than him. Why? Because it's not their name or Paul's name that matters. I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, on the basis of, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you say the same thing. That all of you are of one mind. If you don't, you will be factious. You will be divided. You will be torn apart is the language. I urge you to be united. Bear the name. Be united. Stop defining yourself. Don't just think the same thing, but speak. Confess the name. Paul goes on to say, you were not baptized into my name. This is kind of a no-duh, but he's being very clear about what he's saying. You were not baptized into my name, Corinthians. I don't even remember who I baptized. It's one of the funniest introductions to a letter. I can't even remember who I baptized. It doesn't matter. They weren't baptized into my name. You were not baptized into my name. You were made one when you were baptized into the name of our Lord Jesus. Jesus Christ. And so John Chrysostom and later in article 30, what, maybe it's 27, it's somewhere in our 39 articles of religion, following Chrysostom, Chrysostom says this, the greatness of baptism does not lie in the baptizer or else the efficacy of the baptism doesn't matter whether you follow Apollos or Paul or Peter, doesn't matter, or Chris, please don't follow Chris, don't bear my name. It doesn't, it doesn't lie in the baptizer, but in the one whose name is invoked in the baptism. This is where our identity is formed and found in him. So here is the choice. Here is the juxtaposition of two ways of identity right here at the beginning of this letter. You either bear the name which you are given at your baptism, or you are endlessly dividing. And this comes from naming ourselves over and over again. We are infinitely good at doing this. And the divisions never cease. This is, this is the present reality the insanity that has exploded in our day. This is, this is FOMO. This is, this is fear of missing out. This is choices all before us that are always being given to us on our phones that are perfectly tailored for us. This is a world that says everything exists to revolve around you and your self-definition or else your choices, and it's exhausting. And this self-definition game leads to depression, fear of missing out, and all kinds of other phobias. 
and illnesses and sicknesses and depression. So that's the choice on one side. Harvard psychologist Dan Gilbert, he describes the choice. So he, he's, he de, he's describing some of his research um, where he studied a lot of people who thought, man, I can, I can, if I have infinite choice in all of my relationships, and so he's doing survey studies about choice, cho- choosing a, a spouse or else a lover in this context. And so he's, he's, he's surveying all these people who say, I get to choose from anyone I want, male, female, all the choices are mine. I get to do anything I want. And his research shows that those who constrain themselves and actually made a decision and stuck with it were the only happy people in his research. Hear what he says. Like many people, I used to believe that the more freedom, the better. The more choices, the more, th- the more choices. How could you be less happy when you had more choice? This was what he thought going into his research. And I think this really explains the difference between living together and getting married, which had never occurred to me, Dan Gilbert says. I thought, you know, if you're a scientist and you don't live by your results, what kind of scientist are you? And so, he goes on to describe, I went home and proposed to my girlfriend of 10 years, who we'd just been living together with, and guess what? I was utterly right. I love her so much more now that we're married, now that I can't get out of this relationship no matter how fast I run. She is the love of my life, and I didn't realize that when I was always thinking, should I stay or shouldn't I stay? There's a lot to be said for making commitments or else cutting off all of the choices, the noise. The noise of self-identifying, of choosing over and over again everything from top to bottom or else receiving, receiving the name, not naming for myself. So here is the choice before us this morning. Either you endlessly name yourself and be endlessly divided. It goes on forever like cells that are replicating. That's what happens, and that's what we're seeing all over the place. Or you remember the name that you were given at your baptism. Here is the choice for the Corinthians and for us this morning. You can give in to the satanic temptation to endless self-definition. And you can, act, you can ask Sam. He sent me an article about the, the revival of the church of Satan that doesn't actually believe in Satan. They believe in the self. And it's all about you choosing for yourself. It's a really interesting article. There it is, okay? It's a satanic self-deception that you choose for yourself or you can die to yourself and be identified with your crucified and risen Lord. This is bearing the name. This is the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul asked this question in our text. Is Christ divided? Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? You hear, you hear the insanity of this question. These are clearly rhetorical questions, not only to show what Chrysostom calls the absurdity of the, of the question, right? Was, is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? No, this is absurd. This is what self-definition leads to, but these questions point forward to the powerful word of the cross that we're going to consider more fully next week. At the cross, 
Christ's body was torn to make us one body. At the cross, the bread of life was broken to heal what we tore apart. He he is torn to bring back together what we have torn apart by our self-definition game. Both what is torn apart in our self and in all of the factions that we make. Both healing all the divisions in our souls, but also the divisions among us. For in one spirit, Paul will say later, we were all baptized into one body. Is Christ divided? No, but only because he was torn. He was torn so that there may be no more tearing apart in the body. He bears what we deserve by our self-definition. I've been considering how to make this transition. Last week I went to Blaise Pascal. This week I'm going to go to C.S. Lewis, okay? Um, How do we make the transition from the reality of the name that we're given versus the self-definition game that we play? Because it seems to me, it seems to me on the outside that if we all look the same, if we all bear the name of Christ, and we all kind of just look like a bunch of perfect, same-looking Christians, that that fixes all of this division of self-identity. That's what it seems like to me. Does that, does that seem kind of natural to you? If we all bear the name, we're for all Christians, then we're all looking the same. Or else, if we all choose for ourselves, we choose for ourselves, then there'll be diversity, which is endless. Lewis is, is masterful in showing that this is actually not the case. And I really encourage you, read the last 10 pages of Mere Christianity. I referred to them last week, and I want to look, look at them more fully here this week. Hear this again from Psalm 139, which we recited together this morning. Where shall I go from your spirit? The psalmist says, where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. It's very obvious. In heaven, your presence is there. If I make my bed in the grave, in Sheol, in hell, you are there too. He goes with us into the highest of highs and the lowest of lows. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. And here's the turn to Lewis, if I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night. Even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day for darkness is as light with you. Considering this question of self-definition or else taking on the identity of Christ, this choice, I said from last week, Lewis says, to become new men or else new men and women means losing what we call ourselves, our own self-definition game. Out of ourselves and into Christ, we must go. But he describes the process like this, using the metaphor of light, which we heard in our gospel reading from Matthew chapter 4 and from Psalm 139 this morning. Imagine, Lewis says, imagine a lot of people who have always lived in the dark, You come and try to describe to them what light is like. They've always lived in the dark. They don't have no idea what light is. You might tell them that if they come into the light, that same light 
would fall on them all, and they would all reflect it, and thus become what we call visible. They'll be exposed. They'll be seen. Is it not quite possible that they would imagine that since they were all receiving the same light, they were all bearing the same name and all reacting to it in the same way, i.e. they were reflecting that light back to the light giver, they would all look alike? That's what they thought. If they get into the light, they will all be the same. You and I know that the light will in fact bring out or show up how different they are. And Lewis goes on to say that the multitude of saints are so incredibly diverse. They're utterly unique, as you'll see in this letter in 1 Corinthians. They're, they're different as the different members of the body hold together. And they're all incredibly different. They're utterly unique. How different are the saints and how utterly alike are everyone else? This is what he's reflecting on the end. The more, Lewis says, we get what we now call ourselves out of the way and let him take us over, the more truly ourselves we become. There is so much of him that millions and millions of little Christs, all different, who all bear the name uniquely, will still be too few to express him fully. All of the reflected image bearers of Christ will be still too few to reflect the fullness of his glory. So therefore, I appeal to you, my brothers and sisters, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you were given at your baptism, the name which was freely given to broken people who are torn apart, who are then made whole together because of his broken body. Come, come into the light, be exposed. Welcome the exposure that brings healing. Even the darkness is not dark to our risen Christ. Even the night is as bright as the day, for the darkness is as light to him. It brings healing and peace. Stop. Stop with all the self-definition and bear the name, Christian. Come. Come and eat the bread that was broken. Come and drink of one spirit and live in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please stand.